The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray for you. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful to change lives. And we thank you for Mark and for the word, word that you've put on his heart. I pray that we would hear that word that you've got for each of us and take hold of it and take it away. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ian, and thank you, Judy. Uh, what a brilliant reading. What a brilliant reading. We'll go into that in a little bit of depth uh, shortly, but uh, I just want to start off with a question. Have you ever found yourself in a place of difficulty, feeling that things are against you, and you really, really need someone on your side. I see a number of you nodding. I I certainly have, and uh, as I was uh, reflecting on this, I was remembering one particular incident um, just a few years ago, just just before I sat my A-levels. Half term had finished, and uh, A-levels would you start in three days. Um, And just before half-term had started, the headmaster had pulled all the A-level students together and he talked to us about the importance of being well-prepared for these exams that were so crucial. And how, although there were three days after half-term before the exams started, um, these were mandatory days. They were obligatory days. We were expected to be at school. But... um, There wouldn't be any teaching as such, just personal revision. Now, for me, I lived uh, a fair way away from school. It was about a 90-minute journey uh, to school. So I did, you know, I I wasn't sitting maths, but my maths told me if it's 90 minutes each way, that's three hours a day, three days, that's nine hours. That's an entire day of revision. I'm going to waste sitting on buses going to school. 
it would be much smarter to stay at home and revise. And I did revise. I took the occasional well-earned study break just to watch a little bit of the England-West Indies test match on TV. And on the third day, I was doing, taking just one of those little study breaks, and uh, the phone went next to the TV, and I picked it up. And imagine how I felt when the voice at the end said, this is the headmaster's secretary. Could I speak to Mark Sheard's father, please? Now, the headmaster himself, and any of you who know Val Upton or Paul Salter will know just how intimidating a headmaster was. They're pussycats by comparison with the headmaster that I had. And I was in complete dread at this stage. I went and found my father, who was uh, in the garden or or something, uh, and um, I briefed him on what this call was likely to be about. Uh, And he went to the phone, and I lingered at the door, just outside the door, to hear what my fate was, fearing the absolute worst, knowing that the headmaster was furious, I had disobeyed him, knowing that my father therefore would be equally justified in being furious and so on. I felt there was no one on my side. I had really messed up and I was in it up to my neck. And I heard the question or sensed the question that was being asked, which went something along the lines of, Mr. Sheard, could you tell me where your son is? And then imagine my amazement and relief when I heard my father say, I would imagine he's in his room studying, as he has been all week. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I thought, I have someone on my side. I have someone on my side. And I learned something about grace and mercy and a father's unconditional love then that has stood me in good stead. And that's what this passage is all about. It's about somebody being on your side. The very first verse that we had, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's right at the heart of this passage. I've heard Romans 8 described as an entire chapter as like the the highest peaks of mountaintop theology. Well, if that's the highest peak, almost those words, those four words, if God, or five words, if God is for us, are the Everest. The whole chapter is, of course, amazing. It begins by asserting in verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And it concludes in verse 31 with the promise that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No condemnation and no separation. This is profound and amazing theology, revealing so much of who God is and the nature of his relationship with us, his people. And it's really important that we understand this theology that we know what we believe. So I am going to provide you with a brief summary of of the theology to the best of my ability, beginning at verse 31. Let me just remind you of the words, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? 
If God is for us, who can ever be against us? What are these wonderful things that Paul's referring to? Well, they are the dozens of amazing proof of God's unfailing love, which have been listed throughout the chapter. Verse 1, as I've said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And the one that gets us through those difficult times, one that Helen was talking about last week, we know that in all things God works for good for those who love him. And verse 31, therefore, is the culmination of all those wonderful promises. It reminds us who God is and how he helps us. When we grasp the truth that God is for us, we have nothing to fear. And let's be clear what God being for us really means. God is for us in the sense that he is on our side. He is always, constantly working on our behalf for our good. And he's proved his goodness to us by adopting us as his sons and daughters, by giving us his spirit, and by determining to save us. And that's what this chapter has been all about. So the follow-up question, who can be against us, is pure rhetoric, because the answer is so obvious. If we have the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth on our side, who can be against us? No one can be against us. It's just another way of saying that no one could possibly be more powerful than God. No one could be more on our side than God. No one can destroy us. The idea is not that we're, we'll never face any opposition, we'll never face difficulty or trouble. It's simply that our, any difficulty or trouble or opposition we face is doomed to failure. They may be against us, but never successfully against us. Since God is on our side, we have nothing to worry about. And you can find references like this throughout the Bible, through Psalms, through Kings, through Hebrews. Let me give you one from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But life can be more challenging, can't it? Sometimes our hearts respond to verses like that with consternation. I'll tell you who can be against me. HMRC can be against me. Who hasn't done their tax return yet? Or my boss, he's against me. My landlord, my mother-in-law. People I thought were my friends. Those cancerous cells eating away at me. The cost of living going up all the time. Politicians who don't seem interested in the good of the country only the good of themselves. Oh, don't worry, I've got plenty of people who are against me, plenty of things against me. We can all list them. Our real-life enemies seem to overshadow the wonderful ideas that we read about in Romans 8. It's real life, isn't it, that despite the spiritual promises, we still have to endure physical, mental and emotional struggles 
So much so that it's natural to wonder if God truly is for us. St. Paul, who wrote these verses, knew all about that. He faced struggles the like of which we can barely imagine. If you want to read about them, you can find them in 2 Corinthians 11, 22, where he talks to the Corinthian church about some of the things that he has been through. He says, I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. I've faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders have given me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. And so on. And so on. But his intimate relationship with Christ had become his all-consuming passion. He tells the Philippian church that he considers everything else garbage compared to knowing Christ. He says he's learnt the secret of contentment, whether he, whether he was celebrated or imprisoned. For I can do everything through Christ, he said, who gives me strength. So when Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He knows what he's talking about. He wasn't writing from the position of just a nice, cosy little office. He knew that no one and no thing can overcome Christ's love for us. I hope you're getting some sense of the amazing theology that's in our passage today. It's great theology. And Paul, yeah, okay, Paul, but that was 2,000 years ago, and he was a bit of a one-off, wasn't he? Does it really work in practice? Does it really play out like this? I'm sure you're all aware of the Post Office Horizon scandal, and in particular the way in which sub-postmasters were wrongly accused of theft due to the fault in the computer system. And when they questioned that, they were told, you're the only one with these problems. They must have felt that there was no one for them. My little brother Patrick was a sub-postmaster in Kent, and he was a victim of the Horizon scandal. Nothing like as bad as some of them, but he lost thousands of pounds through it. And as the programmes were broadcast a a few weeks ago, um, we were talking, and he shared some of his experience with us. I'm not going to go into all of it now, time doesn't allow, but he told me how it brought back many painful memories. And then he said this, I would also add that as the story has unfolded over the years since we sold the post office, Paulette, that's his wife, Paulette and I have agreed many times that we felt held and protected by God whilst we were there and since, something we are forever grateful for. If God is for us, who can be against us? Great theology and great real-life experience. So anyway, that's good news. We've got through one verse now, just eight more to go. I don't know why you're laughing. You won't be laughing later. <laughs> as the chapter goes on, it's built around five questions. As I say, we've just heard the first. If God is for us, who can be against us? It goes on. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who then is the one who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Five questions in the passage, 
They're, uh, they're obviously a rhetorical device, but they're also an encouragement for us to go and work it out for ourselves. And it's important that we do work it out for ourselves. But this means much more than simply understanding the theological truths and knowing that there's simply knowing what we believe is not enough. It's about experiencing what we believe. It's about living what we believe. So I want us to stop thinking about this passage as a theological treatise, but hear it for what it is. It's a love letter from God to you. And I'd like this to be really personal for each one of us. There are some verses in Ephesians that are a prayer. It goes like this. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then get this bit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, which is us, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So I'm not going to work through a commentary on the other eight verses. Instead, I want us to do something a little bit different. I want you to stop listening to me. That's if you still are. And I want you to make space to hear the voice of God. To hear his spirit whispering to you. To reassure you. To encourage you. To change not just your mind and your thinking, but your heart and your soul. I want us to practice simply resting in the presence of God for a short time. and Let him speak to us by his spirit. So what we're going to do now is just go through this passage verse by verse, which will come up on the screen. I'm going to use a different version to the one we read, the New Living Bible, just to avoid us being too familiar with the words, maybe get hear them a little bit differently. And as we go through it, I'm just going to prompt a question or two. can give you some space to listen to God. So I want us to be still. And breathe, knowing that you're sitting in the presence of God. As you breathe in, ask the Lord to help you listen to him and to hear him clearly. And as you breathe out, notice what it is that you feel you need to get rid of, that's holding you back. And ask the Lord to take it from you. Carry on with that rhythmic breathing as you rest in the presence of God. And let's pray, Lord, that you will lead our time now. You'll guide us through this. And by your spirit, help us notice what it is that you want us to notice. And lead us into conversations with you that you want to have with us. So that we can see you more clearly. So that we will love you more dearly. And help us to follow you more nearly so that we will be more like our Lord Jesus. God is for us, so who can be against us? We rest before you, enjoying your extravagant love, knowing you are on our side, having seen that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And we remember that even though we may now be enduring tough times, or those times may be ahead of us, no matter what is happening to us, no matter what we may have done or not done, God is with us. So let's rest in verse 31. Now, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Let's just stay with that verse. What is it that you feel is against you? Stopping you having that life in all its fullness that God wants for you. Perhaps it is health concerns or financial worries or relationship difficulties or a failure or a sense of guilt. Let God bring into your mind what he wants and in the space of a few minutes of quiet, just acknowledge that before God. Now as we move on into verse 32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Let's remember that there is no limit to the riches of God in any area, except for one. He only has one son, and he gave him up for us. How does that make you feel about how God feels about you? And then consider whether you are hesitant in asking God for what you need. Is now the time you need to raise your expectations of God's goodness? And then verse 33 continues, Who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honour, at God's right hand, pleading for us. As you listen to these words, are you living under accusation? Are you accusing yourself, feeling that you're not worthy of God's love and goodness? Are you telling yourself that God knows what I'm really like and so he can't possibly love me? 
is God wanting you to know today? That his love for you is so complete and unconditional that there's nothing you might ever have done that will stop him loving you. Let him whisper that to you now. And so it goes on into the next verse. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? What is it in your life that is separating you from God, that's driving you a wedge between you and God? Is it one of those real-life concerns that you brought before God a few moments ago? Can they really separate you from Jesus? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. So now might be a good moment to ask God what it could look like for you to know and live out that victory, which is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. What would that look like? So we come to the last two verses. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now take a moment to reflect on whatever it is that God has been bringing into your mind and ask the Lord how these words that you've heard and reflected on today impact that situation where you need overcome something that has been separating you from God. And as you reflect on that, now's the moment to ask the Lord if there's a step that he's inviting you to take, whether he's asking you to confess something, or to do something, or to remember something. Whatever it is, take a moment to talk with God in the quiet of your heart now about how you might take this next step. I'm just going to read those last two verses again. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love. Neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither my fears for today nor my worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate me from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful and glorious reminder of your love for us, a love that can never be taken from us. Nothing that we can do and nothing that can be done to us can ever remove us from your love. What an amazing, extravagant, unconditional picture this paints for us. So, Lord, if we have any doubts, I pray that you will chip them away and embed this truth deep within our hearts and souls, knowing that we are deeply, deeply, deeply loved by you. And, Lord, would you guide and lead us to know what it looks like to claim the victory that you talk about here, that is ours through you, even when our situation doesn't change. Help us to know that you've given us everything we need to live in step with you. To live in your love, regardless of our circumstances. So Lord, help us to live and rest in your love and your victory. In Jesus' name, amen.